want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, it's... 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, one of Soundside's TV podcasts. This is Kate Kalsik, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, I can breathe, not deeply, but I can breathe, and this is a good thing. I can speak. And you did it without scotch. And I did it without scotch. Now, for the listeners at home, uh, I'm a big proponent of the hot water, uh, you know, like boiling or just under boiling with lemon juice and honey. Like a two to one lemon juice to honey, couple teaspoons, you know, thing in in the water. Uh, Simon, what is your cure all? A hot toddy, which, in, to my mind, must contain scotch. It just it not necessarily a hot toddy. I guess it's not a traditional hot toddy, but I always prescribe honey, lemon, hot water, and a little scotch. Not a lot, just enough to kick yourself in the ass a little bit and i swear to god i have i mean i don't get sick very often because god loves me but <laughs> when i do every time like magic it doesn't necessarily kick it in the ass away right away but it definitely accelerates the process i'm sure there's people at home who can vouch for this the next time the next time this happens to you kate just try it once what's the worst that could happen first of all i'd have to buy scotch because i don't drink scotch uh, so there's it's that. medicinal scotch. You need to have it around. No, I'm good. I'm good not having. You know, like if you were to tell me that I needed to buy medicinal tequila, I would be way more on board with that because then I could also use it when I wasn't sick. Um, also, uh, just like, I, know, I get what you're saying, but just I can't turn off the part of my brain saying alcohol when you're sick is a terrible idea. It's not good for your immune system. Um, and also, I get sick a lot, so I don't know if that means I'm more qualified or less qualified in this. Uh, but this was definitely one of the worst. I had it, over a week of just sitting around, not able to do anything, not able to work. It was terrible. I'm so glad to be feeling better. I look forward to hearing our, our listeners chime in on their thoughts on this. What are your cure-alls? What works for you guys? I've discovered with this last one that uh, steam is my best friend now. So I'm also going to throw steam in there. But the side effect of all of this is that not only have I now seen all of Legend of Korra, I've also seen all of Avatar The Last Airbender. So those two are checked off the list. Yay! That, that's impressive. The only, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to have time to catch up on Korra before the year's out. I really have to watch Penny Dreadful. Uh, because I've just I've heard so many contradictory things about it. Yeah, and it it definitely seems like it's at least of interest, and my my 2014 TV knowledge will not be complete without it. I certainly look forward to your thoughts, and I think that's an excellent way of of putting the reaction to Penny <laughs> okay. Dreadful. Because for some people, it's it's the best thing in the world, and for other people, it's they're just flummoxed by the praise. So I look forward to your thoughts 
on this. I also look forward to hearing from you guys more this week. Hopefully I'll actually be on Twitter now that I can turn my head without it hurting. Uh, so, uh, but we did hear from some of you guys this week. I wanted to mention uh, we got a long comment from Ken at the website. I'm not going to go into all of it. Um, but I will mention that apparently, Simon, you and Sonya are Iron Man and Thor, and I am Captain America. I don't know what any of that met metaphor means, but it sounds really sexy. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's We're, we're dealing with... I, ha I have Marvel blocked on my... I have a, a whole intricate system of things that I mute on Twitter, and Marvel's one of them. So I kind of understand where this is coming from, but I try not to spend too much thinking, too much time thinking about it. <laughs> well, uh, I, it was, it's a fun little uh, line in, uh, in Ken's comment over at the website. So you can check it out if you're curious. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you're more of a, do you feel like you're happy go lucky? No, I feel like maybe you're more, I don't know. Do you, are you quippy or happy go lucky? Would you enjoy a glass of mead? Or would you enjoy your glass of scotch? Can I be quippy and tortured? Does that work? That's Iron Man. So, yeah, there you go. Solved. Uh, Sonya, you're Thor. That's there we that go. Works, I think she'd be okay me. with that. Yeah. Normally, I self-describe as the Incredible Hulk if I have to m make myself one of those. Because uh, I think we all say... Like, I, I saw a great tweet this week on Twitter about how you can either spell correctly or be angry and not both. And the internet proves this. Uh, and that seems about right for me. So I enjoy uh, self-describing as Captain, as uh, as the Incredible Hulk. So uh, this Captain America thing is new, but I'll take it. Captain America is awesome. Um, we also heard from Brian on Twitter who said he's, he's been loving Over the Garden Wall. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Uh, are you familiar with this at all? I had not heard of it until you brought it up to me immediately before recording this podcast. It's a mini series that I want to say is on, I want to say Cartoon Network. I could be wrong on that, but it's an animated mini series. Uh, I remember that uh, Elijah Wood is one of the main voices in it. I saw a thing for it at Comic-Con. It looked interesting. I know a lot of people have been really enjoying it, but I haven't had a chance to check in with it. Uh, Brian also mentioned a few other shows that are wrapping up. Love, hate. I just finished fifth season, some other shows, but I wanted to specifically mention Over the Garden Wall. Hopefully I'll get a chance to take a look at it this week. I talked to Doctor Who with Matt and Damien. I heard from another listener who was watching Kingdom. Kriggs, you're watching Kingdom too. So that is now two of our listeners watching Kingdom. If there are any mm. of the rest of you out there, let us know. I don't know that there are, but I'm hoping that there are. I also talked a uh, little Avatar with Elena and uh, many other things I'm sure that I am forgetting at, at, at the moment. But uh, fun talking with you guys this week on Twitter. Uh, at the end of the podcast, we'll be talking with Caroline Sita of the AV Club and debating Doctor Who about Star Trek Voyager. And that was that was fun. Are you more like how do you feel about the remaining Trek that we have? Original series and Enterprise. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't really know much about Enterprise, except that it seems to be universally reviled. So I don't know who... Do we have anyone who wants to talk about it? No, no, not at the moment. But <laughs> like, are you like more? Are you looking forward to either of those, or are you dreading them when they eventually happen? I feel like uh, an Old Spice Trek will probably have some appeal. Yeah, I, that's like a big gap in my nerd knowledge i know a few of the the big episodes but most of it i have I've never seen so i think that's one that i'm kind of looking forward to checking out the list i gotta say but uh anyways it it was fun talking with caroline uh about voyager that's coming at the end of the podcast but for now let's take a break uh and we'll come back with our week in comedy it takes a lot to make us do a pinch 
of salt and laughter too. A scoop of kids to add the spice. A dash of love to make it nice. And you got too many cooks, too many cooks, too many cooks. Comedy, that's right. There are too many cooks that can spoil the stew. So we're going to talk about that this week, the phenomenon of too many cooks. Uh, then we'll talk a little Bob's Burgers from last week, Tina and the Real Ghost, before a little Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Jake and Sophia from this week, Keen Peel, Sex Detective, and Jane the Virgin. I'll talk about Chapter 4. You'll hint a little bit out cha- a little bit of Chapter 5, which has already aired, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Uh, first, we got to kick things off with with too many cooks. So, Simon, you're one of the first people I knew who was talking about this. I saw, like, a couple things on Twitter, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. Oh, Adult Swim. People kept calling it, like, this, like, the perfect thing designed to mess up stoned millennials. Uh, And I was like, I don't care about stoner comedy. So... It was it was your insistence that everyone must watch too many cooks that finally got me to set aside the ten minutes. I'm so glad that I did. Do you <laughs> Actually, want to describe I no, this? I had no idea how you'd react. Okay, I will I will tell you the story of too many cooks as I experienced it. As we record this, about a week and a half ago, as I understand it, Adult Swim aired it at four in the morning. I didn't I wasn't aware of this, but they apparently air all kinds of stuff at four in the morning that they don't air at any other time, including an entire series uh, called Off the Air, which is a whole other kettle of fish, which is kind of fascinating. But anyway, um, and I, uh, first of all, the fact that they have a 4 a.m. lineup is spectacular. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> but I love that it actually, it's the first sort of organic viral thing to happen in a long time. It feels like most most of these sort of viral video events are the result of somebody cramming something down someone's throat or it's secretly a marketing campaign of some kind and this actually seems to be quite organic why this particular adult swim thing has gone viral and virtually nothing else they've done in the last five years has i'm not really sure but uh for me personally i mean i just i love the way it incorporates these avant-garde influences which apparently casper kelly has specifically cited in certain places with some really genuinely horrifying moments with uh, a pretty sort of actually a pretty rote concept, you know, the, the idea of sending up sitcom credits. I mean, people have cited a few other sketches that did it first, although I think this is doing some different things, um, along with all these genre parodies, some of which are more successful than others. But the way it, it cross cuts all these visual elements, I think, is actually really fascinating. And I'm not surprised that people have latched onto it in sort of an intellectual way, but I think it, more importantly, it's also funny as hell. Yeah, yeah. It, it, for those who don't know what Too Many Cooks is, it's the opening credits to a, a 90s, 80s, 90s sitcom about the Cook family. There's too many cooks. They can't even fit on the couch for their family photo. 
but then it keeps going for 11 minutes. Uh, and as you have su suggested, it takes a turn or two or <laughs> or three or seven or 50. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, do you have a favorite portion or is it really <sighs> the whole, I, I like mean, the, the set? I have a soft spot for near the, like, uh, I mean, the slasher portion is great. Uh, the Falcon portion is fantastic, but I think my personal soft spot for just the peak insanity is when the people become the credits and the credits become the people, which mm -hmm. when you say that sentence, it doesn't make any sense. It's like it's syntactically or anything, but then you'll watch it and you'll understand what I mean. That See, was, <laughs> I didn't realize that's what that exactly was. I was like, why are there people floating there? Like, until you said that, I didn't realize that. I assumed it was a film reference that I wasn't, like, some, like, Lynch thing from Inland Empire that I haven't seen. Cause it's a got layers, of man. Yeah. Uh, so that, because <laughs> I got, like, the whole, the credits being the people, but I didn't make that next leap, and now I feel like an idiot, because obviously, yeah, there's there's just so many ridiculous touch, surreal touches, uh I like the when it like the first you know genre jump over to be a cop show. I thought was pretty great. Like when they, I like when they change the lyrics to fit with some of these different genres as well. Um, yeah, and it it is appropriately catchy. Oh my god! And they did a fantastic job on the music. Apparently, uh, I know that the composers who were involved have done a bunch of other Adult Swim things, but they said this was by far the hardest thing they've ever done, which if you sit down and listen to it, that's not surprising because it's really intricate. Yeah, those composers are Sean Coleman and Michael Kohler. And yeah, and you, you already said it, Casper Kelly, that's the writer and director of the short for mm -hmm. those who are for, yeah. unaware. He's also responsible for a series called Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell, which I'm now going to have to check out. <laughs> uh, do we have any other thoughts I mean, obviously, if we wanted to dive in, we could talk about Too Many Cooks. We've already discussed this off air. This could be a DVD shelf because there is that much stuff we could have fun peeling apart. We're not going to do that. No. So do you have any other thoughts uh, in the generic sense on Too Many Cooks? It just It's the first sort of viral or like socially widely discussed pop culture phenomenon in a long time to actually make me happy. So I'm just, it's, yeah. And the few detractors haven't been very convincing to me. So yes, I'm just, I'm all for too many cooks. I'll hail too many cooks. <laughs> too many cooks. Just forever. Too many cooks forever. All the cooks all the time into eternity. I want to I know if all of those actor names are the actual actors in they are these, or are they made up okay i just assumed they were made up but then i noticed that a few of them were correct so because you know usually the the writers have fun coming up with names but there's so many that i don't they know. are those are their real names if you go to the imdb page for the for the short there's another joke layer there uh, okay. but i won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't done that okay i'm gonna have to look into that but for now, let's move on to a show we should have talked about last week, and that's Bob's Burgers, Tina and the Real Ghost. This is what happens when I'm sick. I make stupid mistakes, like not having us talk about an awesome Halloween episode the day after it aired. Uh, what did you think of, of Tina and the Real Ghost and how, I mean, Bob's has a really strong tradition of Halloween episodes. How does this compare? I mean, they've, they've got a great tradition of holiday episodes in general. I think this was one of their best in a long time. And actually, it's my favorite Bob's for quite a while. I mean, that 
the actual airing schedule for Bob's has been highly erratic for quite a while, which has been frustrating. But um, this was one of my favorite Bob's for quite a while. I, I thought that the it it got that trademark Bob's mix of being heartwarming and strange and uh, maybe even a little bit transgressive, uh, just just right. And th th I mean, the fact that it had a, a ghost love interest that that wasn't real and Tina's aware that it's not real, but is still totally into it anyway. And everyone else gets wrapped up in it. I just love that whole conceit so much because it, it really it pinpointed what I think everyone loves about the show. Yeah, and you know, Tina episodes are always some of the best. The 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 way that they use Louise and uh Jean in Tina episodes tends to be uh really entertaining. And so when we get the the climax at the cemetery or the mausoleum or whatever, uh that was pretty great. And uh yeah, her sitting on a bench with the uh, the butterflies like, "Hey, you can't Oh, I thought it was food. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't care if you have a ghost in a box <laughs> to watch the butterflies. Yeah, there there was a lot to really enjoy about this episode, and I agree. It has been an erratic viewing. I uh, like. I want to know that Bob's Burgers is gonna be on this Sunday, but guys, it's not back until November twenty third. I want to say. Uh, so we still have to wait a few more weeks. Uh, yeah, this was a really fun episode. Absolutely. Um, next up, I'm going to just quickly mention Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Jake and Sophia. I heard this was a particularly strong episode, so I tuned in. I haven't been tuning in with Brooklyn Nine-Nine now that it's on Sundays. Sundays are just so packed. Uh, but I did enjoy this episode. You know, the thing is with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, from what I've seen this season, is that it it has maintained its, uh, its really winning and charming personality and tone from last season this season they've done a good job there as far as i can tell there's no sophomore slump and uh i i like what you know it, it's it it's a comedy that found its voice surprisingly quickly in its first year and has maintained that and only you know in, improved over time so this episode i thought was a really fun one i like the antagonism between the defense uh, attorney and uh, and the cops that worked really well. The stuff with uh, Holt. I mean, Andre Andre Brower can, you know, he he can just turn his chair around, and I will always laugh every time, especially if he feels the need to tell people that he is turning his chair around. It, it's it's a consistent fun show. We don't talk about it on the podcast, but I always like when I tune in. So I figured I would mention it this week. Are you missing Brooklyn Nine Nine at all? Uh, not really. If if it happens to be on and I catch it, I I generally watch it. But it's it's not appointment viewing for me. Yeah. In uh, on the contrary, I don't miss Mindy and the New Girl, or I don't miss the Mini Project or New Girl at all. Uh, you know, it's funny. Incidentally, I did actually watch New Girl this week just because it happened to be on, and I and I later saw people freaking out about that episode, and it still didn't really do a whole lot for me. So clearly the some people still love New Girl, but it's not it's not really working for me on any kind of significant level. Yeah. How is Key and Peel working for you? This uh, this week we had Sex Detective, uh <laughs> we had the action hero who <laughs> breaks necks uh with Anna Camp. We had uh the return of Luther. How how is this episode for you? I thought it was pretty across the board solid, no real sort of out of the park winners, but everything was pretty consistently amusing. Uh, I think it was hurt by the fact that, for instance, the ne the neck breaking sketch, while 
amusing and you know beautifully filmed in terms of capturing the 80s VHS action film style. Uh, it was a little bit too reminiscent of MacGruber, unfortunately, um, but still funny. It was nice to have Anna Camp there. And, it's, and actually, the, the bit near the end of the sketch with the constant neck breaking was admirably icky. I don't know. Maybe it was just me, but I just I almost had trouble watching that bit. The uh, the Luther sketch was probably the highlight until the actual drone showed up, which to me, like, that was just one layer. That was one bit too much. I prefer a little bit more restraint in the Obama sketches, but maybe that's just me. Uh, the yogurt sketch was fine. The sex detective sketch was probably... The, I'm, I'm not surprised that they named the episode after it, because I think the conceit was probably the funniest in the episode, even though it was totally a one-joke sketch. But it was a really good joke, especially in the era of Stalker. <laughs> Yep, I'm gonna agree with just about everything you said there. Uh, the, the having watched too many, I don't, I, and I know that's the thing. I know it's nowhere near as many as a lot of people, but it's still too many action movies that fall into the vein of the one parodied here. I particularly enjoyed that. Also, too many episodes of Walker Texas Ranger, where we would get a similar kind of aesthetic. Uh, yeah, I really had a, a fond place in my heart for that. But that sketch is, it just keeps going. It's really, it's a, it's, I think it's probably overly long, but I think it needs that length to really mm -hmm. do what it's doing. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm a trick in a tricky place with it where it took up such a lot. It feels like it took a big chunk of the episode, but I liked it, but I don't know if it was worth the amount of time it took to really do it right. You know? Uh, I so I like this episode, but it certainly is not one of the more memorable for you know of the year. I I forgot that I had watched it until I checked, looked up what actually was the episode this week, and was reminded. And then I thought, oh yeah, I really had fun with this this episode of Key and Peel. But that I think, you know, especially when we record the podcast most of the week later, uh, from when this you know Key and Peel airs, I have trouble keeping track of some of the different uh sketches so yeah I, and i and i'm gonna just last thing i'll mention is that with the luther uh sketch the big thing for me is that this is the first time we've seen uh obama and his anger translator all season i think it's the first time we've seen them since we got um michelle and her anger translator last right yeah I, we had a sketch with obama but there was no luther yeah. So I, I think when you talk about restraint, I think that's the big thing is the fact that, I mean, we still haven't seen several of their big characters so far this season. So I think it's good the way that they're doling that out. It's mm -hmm. And we haven't had any East versus West yet, which yeah. I'm sure is coming. Yeah, we haven't had the valets. We haven't had the uh, girlfriend and uh, like Vanessa or something like the one who always storms off. We, there's mm -hmm. a lot of their their regular characters that we haven't seen this season. I think, especially because we've talked about it previously, this is such a long season. So it's a, isn't it a full twenty something episode season? Twenty two, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good move. So I continue to enjoy Key and Peele, even if you know they they've not captured anything near their uh, Steve Urkel sketch since. But I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, it's hard. That's a hard bar to match. Uh, let's move on to Jane the Virgin, a show that does keep meeting itself every week. Uh, well done describing uh, Jane's sex dream without saying Jane or sex or dream. Uh, in our discussion last week, uh, I appreciate the restraint there. And I absolutely agree with what you said last week about that. The fact that they have Jane... Because I love that Jane is... 
she just can't lie. She's just, she's not a liar. She, it would be better for her if there are certain things, if she just kept it to herself. Like when she just tells her grandmother, I'm planning to have sex. I know you would want me to wait, but I'm, I've made this decision Instead of just not telling you, I'm going to tell you. Because that's the kind of person she is. I love that that is the, the heroine of this show. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely one of the most charming things about it. You haven't seen episode five yet, so I will uh, once again try to honor not spoiling anything. But the gap between Jane and everyone else continues to be a source of very, very honest feeling tension. The fact that she's such an honest person and she is disappointed when other people aren't as ridiculously honest as she is. Uh, that feels... Like, a, you know, you, you've got this very heightened atmosphere. So if you're going to make that work consistently, you need to have these consistent character beats uh, that that help everyone feel more empathetic. And I think they've done a great job, so far at least, when when you have characters who lie or withhold things. Like, uh, for instance, Jane's mother when she doesn't tell her about her dad. Or Michael when he doesn't tell her about things that he knows. That you understand why they're doing it, even though we also understand why jane will will not react well i think that's uh that's a fantastic place to have your characters be i do uh i am a little frustrated that they have rewritten uh jane's mom knowing about the dad because in the earlier episode they they established that she knew the the dad's name but had lost track of him didn't know where he was until she saw him on tv and then she contacted him and he took forever to get back to her. It's like, I, she goes, I wrote in the pilot or the second episode, she goes, I wrote you, you know, 10 months ago, you know, and he's like, how could you not tell me all these years? And she had said that she didn't know where he was until she walked in and saw him on TV. And that's what allowed her to reach out. And then in this last episode, it's all, you kept my dad's identity a secret my whole life. You kept my dad away from me. And that is not what the show established in its like second episode in the pilot. And then in the second or third episode. So that's a little frustrating to me. Huh? That hadn't even occurred to me, but I guess you're right. I mean, when you've got so many plot details flying around, you're bound to get one wrong. Yeah, but they've done so well with the other ones (laughs) that it's that, that is, you know, it's takes the shine off a little. Uh, Speaking of that, I loved the, the visual of like the glowing, you know, halo, around Raphael last week. I thought that was such a great touch, just a nice little visual representation using, taking advantage of television as a visual medium to, to you know, shortcut a lot of that really mm-hmm. worked well. Uh, I'm looking forward to what, if the show is willing to go into Raphael's perspective with that this next episode, and you're not going to tell me because I don't want you to. I, I, I won't tell you. I will say that episode five does some really interesting stuff with at throwing in a couple new visual elements expanding the show's world in subtle ways, which it seems like they're going to do even more next week, which like actually quite a lot more, which should be fascinating and necessary since they've got a 22 episode season. Uh, Yeah. I just, I continue to be absolutely impressed with everything they're doing. It continues to be, there are parts of episode five in particular that are just laugh out loud, funny, which, you know, again, like this is the sort of show that could get away with being totally funny or totally serious for an hour. And I'd be totally down with it. Unlike what I said when the show initially started. And yeah, I mean, I'm just people who aren't watching this are incorrect. Yeah. Um, We've praised the narrator so many times. I figured I should actually say what his name is. That's Anthony Mendez who's doing such a a fabulous job. He's on Twitter uh, because he retweeted one of my early, my early review 
um, for Sound on Sight. Uh, so, so I think if you, you know, those who are appreciating the narrator as much as we are can check him out on Twitter. But um, uh, the, for me, the line of the episode has to be uh, this week. You can't ex- get, expect me to keep the carnal gift of Rogelio only for you or something like that to not give the, the carnal gift of Rogelio to other people uh, was pretty spectacular. I continue to love that performance. I think that actor is d- doing a fantastic job. Uh, mm. Sorry. We should say his name. Uh, his name is Jamie Camille uh, or hey, anyway, fuck it. I'm not, I can't do it anyway. Or Jaime. I, I don't know if it's Jaime or Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the knows? appropriate pronunciation is. <laughs> anyway, sorry everyone but i think he's been doing a great job and in particular in episode five he's doing some really funny stuff yeah definitely i look forward to to catching up the next episode uh so for now uh simon what wins your week in comedy so many options here i mean i can only give it to too many cooks once or can i (laughs) um yeah i think i i still have to i still have to give it to jane the virgin because too That's many fair. cooks is great, but the one that I couldn't wait to watch after we finished recording last week was Jane the Virgin, and that's how I feel about it this week as well. So, um, fair I'm enough. Still giving it to Jane the Virgin. Okay, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre. Excuse me. I wanna thank you. For all your help Cause you're wrong to me You're wrong to me I know You tell me all the bad things I didn't know about myself Cause you're wrong to me You're wrong to me I know Maybe I'm But at least I'm looking. But at least I'm This week in genre, it's going to be a short one uh, because a bunch of genre shows took the week off because of the elections this past week. Um, so first up, The Legend of Korra, The Battle of Zafu, and then I'll talk a little bit about the Doctor Who finale, Death in Heaven, before we both t- chime in with Arrow, The Secret Origin of Felicity Smoke. So the, the Battle of Zafu I thought was fun, but a little underwhelming, especially because I have just finished watching, you know, the the climactic three-season journey of Avatar The Last Airbender. And so when you have... And even just the other... Some of the other battles in Korra have been so intense. I mean, even just in, you know, the pro-bending matches in season one um, and in some of the stuff that goes down with... Uh, with uh, Bolin and, and Mako, um, they're, they're one-on-one showdowns with different characters earlier in this season or, or, the, la- or the previous season. I mean, so this was underwhelming, but I, it does, I think, continue their, the, what they've been looking at this uh, all season about uh, the PTSD or the trauma that Korra is dealing with. So that's 
Uh, that that's interesting, but uh, especially after seeing this described as like a battle royale, I was really expecting more from her duel, Korra's duel, duel with uh, Kuvira. I'm hoping there's more to come with that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's good to not overpower your hero. I'm, I'm sure the usually Legend of Korra has excellent fight scenes, so I'm sure that there's more coming for that. I like what they do with Bolin and uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, unfortunately, the, the mad scientist. Um, and I like that Julie is actually getting something to do this season. So there's plenty to enjoy here about um, Legend of Korra, but maybe not as, you know, it's the first time I was a little underwhelmed, I gotta say. So next uh, up is the Doctor Who finale, Death in Heaven. My review is up at Sound on Sight. And uh, a little underwhelmed is probably the right answer for this as well, because I just I'm, I can't help but be a little disappointed in how this episode treats the Doctor and Clara relationship because they set up all these really interesting threads of Clara's and, and the Doctor's relationship being more thorny and uh, dark than just, it's my best friend. And then here, all of a sudden, they're just back to straight up, it's my best friend. And these this discussion of Clara being addicted to life in the TARDIS and the power that comes with it all goes by the wayside. Like there's, there's some, some good continuation of the Danny doctor tension. And, and, and I like the way that Clara leaves that works, but I think they, they, this was a once in a, sh a 50 year long show opportunity to explore a character who's been made worse by traveling with the doctor and um, or at least whose darker impulses have been uh, have expanded maybe because of traveling with the doctor. And that is all just washed away in this episode. So that I can't help but, you know, be a little disappointed by that. Um, Michelle Gomez, I thought was pretty fantastic as Missy, particularly in the second episode. I'm really going to miss having Samuel Anderson on the show. He was a real discovery for me this season. And on the whole, I think the season has been a strong one, but I think it could have been really great if they hadn't stuck the landing. And unfortunately they don't. That being said, the final moments revealing that Nick Frost is going to play Santa Claus are kind of awesome because I just saw him pop up. And I was like, his name is Nick Frost. I, I already enjoy him as an actor, but it makes me extra happy that somebody named Nick Frost is playing Father Christmas in the Christmas special. I, I'm so glad these things make you happy. Come on. You know, it's like maybe someday you'll have a kid named Jack and then his kid will become an actor and he'll play, play Santa Claus at some point. It's great. I, 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 to have your sense of whimsy, Kate, I, I think I would kill for it. Although I guess that would defeat the purpose of whimsy. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, whimsy, how how much did uh, Arrow's flashback episode about Felicity work for you? I, I feel kind of bad because Felicity wasn't in the episode that you watched for your catch-up on Arrow. And then she's front and center here, but she's saddled with so much like just buzzword kind of unfortunateness in this episode. Oh man. Here's the thing. Like I came home from a long run and I got home just in time to have this on and I didn't want to move. So I was just like, okay, I guess I'm watching arrow and Hey, it's a Felicity centric episode and everyone seems to love Felicity and admit. And I do think that um, I do think Emily Bent Rickards has a ton of charisma 
and has like a sort of an unusual screen presence for a show like this. But yeah, the the this look she gets saddled with in the flashbacks is highly distracting and annoying. Um, the whole notion of bringing in hacktivism and uh, you know trying to become Arrow, trying to be socially relevant, is really not a good look. At least from what I saw in this episode, the whole, the baddie and the whole thing with surprise resurrection that really shouldn't be a surprise at this point in the mythology. Um, that was insanely predictable and not at all surprising. And the whole showdown was ridiculous. And also, maybe it's just me, but I really did not like the way that they characterized the mother-daughter relationship and the way that they were outfitting the mother character and, you know, just very broadly portraying those particular character beats. And I just, it was one of those things watching, it's like, there's no way this episode was written by a woman. And it wasn't. And I, <laughs> I, I, I felt a little bit validated by that bit of knowledge. As uh, you know, as someone who enjoys a, a good flashback episode or a um, surprise reveal kind of thing like that, I did enjoy Felicity's goth look, and uh, it, it's very cliche. But that's the thing that kind of actually made it work. Besides, just it's fun to see Felicity in a completely different, you know, in a diff different place in her life. It just sort of fits for me for her to be like college level i'm gonna i'm a goth man i'm gonna rebel against my very proper you know blonde mother by dressing like death from sandman uh and thinking that's original and talking about hacktivism and like thinking that's cool and, and edgy because i'm a stupid college freshman yeah like i, I understand what they were doing with it and uh and like i the, the notion of having this sort of self-effacing set of character beats, I think, was a good one. I just think that doing it in this way that made it seem like they were trying for contemporary relevance, I think it was just a weird, unpleasant mix for me. So maybe if they, I mean, I don't know if this is what they were intending, but if it was, uh, if they were trying to, like, mock her a little bit with it, maybe they needed to be more upfront about that. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what it is specifically about the execution. Maybe it's just the fact that they're touching on some on stuff that has like really interesting real world implications. And I feel like they're not ready to deal with those seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I don't like they're trying to, you know, as with so many other things, have their cake and eat it, too. And it's it's not working out for me. I don't know. I, there was just so much about this episode I found distractingly silly, even for a superhero show, which I know sounds really dismissive because it is. So, you know, sorry. Well, unfortunately, this is one of the worst action set pieces I think the show has done that I've seen, at least that 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 big, you know, uh, uh, Oliver versus the, I guess, the motion detecty gun yeah, thing. Yeah, that was so lame. I like that they have Felicity save herself in the, in the last moment and take out the guy. That's nice. It's a little obvious, but I'd rather them go with the obvious she saves herself than the she gets saved answer you know so so obviously she's not going to be able to stop this guy with the gun by herself because she doesn't randomly have martial arts training like a lot of shows like this seem to want to make all of their side characters have uh but i do like that she isn't powerless in that situation either that being said how how much of an idiot is the guy i mean i'm sorry if you bring felicity in because she's such an amazing hacker that she'll be able to break into this thing that no one else can break into and then you leave her with one of her hands tied up in front of a super powerful computer, 
You deserve to be killed by the arrow. Yeah, no, just nothing about that worked for, like, I don't know, a lot of the actual plotting was, like, sub Schumachery. Like, if, 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 if guys, if you're going to try to sell me on this stuff, you, you just need to try a little bit harder. Arrow can do better, and it, it usually does. So uh, there, there was stuff that I definitely enjoyed and had fun with about this episode. Um, but like, like the baby. Could be, it's like, I don't, I'm not comfortable with a baby being in our secret, you know, bat cave. It's like, but it's, it's safe. It's like, yeah, I just, there's a lot of weapons. I mean, like things like that were fun for me, but yeah, this definitely mm -hmm. was not one of their best episodes. Um, so that being said for me, I guess I'm going to give, oh man, it's a lackluster genre week. I guess I'll give the Doctor Who finale the best week in genre here. Um, with the caveat, because I, I have enjoyed a lot of the season and I thought there was some really fun moments here, but, uh. Yeah, are you going to even give it? To, are you going to give to Arrow, or are you going to again plead the fifth? Mm, too many cooks. <laughs> too many cooks does work as genre. I can do that. There's no rules. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that works for me. Okay, now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in drama. Come a little bit closer. Listen, cause I have to say, you know you got a way of moving, girl. You take my breath away. This weekend drama, I'm going to preview The Missing and State of Affairs. Then we'll talk a little Kingdom, Eat Your Own Cooking, Parenthood, These Are the Times We Live In, The Affair, Five, uh, The Good Wife, Red Zone, and we'll end with the newsroom premiere. <laughs> yeah! Boston. Yeah, but first up, The Missing is a new show that's premiering on uh, Stars this Saturday. It's already started airing in uh, the UK. It's a BBC uh, One and Stars co-production, and uh, I've seen the first five. I did review this for the AV Clips, and my review should be going up uh, later this week over there. But for the, this is a show about a, a child goes missing. He's, I want to say five years old and he and he's uh he gets you know abducted or he disappears in a in a in a crowd the dad you know loses he's holding his hand and then one second he's not and the kid is just gone uh and so it follows the immediate aftermath of the the kids the son's disappearance and then also cross cuts with uh, eight years later when there's been a new clue that's emerged that gives them the first really big break in the case. And so we follow the, the father and the mother and the, the lead police detective and some of these other things, both in the initial time period and then eight years later. And so I'm sure there are a lot of people who will enjoy kind of puzzle piecing this together. I really didn't care about that because uh, for me, any d major differences between who they are in the past and who they are in the present to me gets very easily explained by their kid was kidnapped. Of course, they're completely different people in many ways eight years later. Um, and, and that's true for, you know, pretty much all the characters we see. 
Um, but I know some people will really enjoy that element of it. I don't want to, you know, there's many different ways to watch a show. The performances are very good across the board. James Nesbitt is the father. Frances O'Connor, I was really glad to see her pop up actually as the mother. I really enjoy her on this. The real discovery for me was Chucky Cairo, whose name I'm sure I just butchered, uh, who's uh, a French actor uh, who plays the detective. I didn't even, the, the, I really like the way that they differentiate between the time of the crime and the uh, future. I, I like that he is there. He's, you know, this is very much a show that has tropes or types in some of these roles, these main roles. And he is the, like the, the, the cop who won't let it go. You know, once he, you once you give this dog a bone, he's going to follow it, you know, that kind of a character. But I also, but he's also really restrained and thoughtful and careful and um, cautious about, he doesn't want to give anybody hope. He's not, you know, this could, he know he realizes how easily this stuff could just fall apart. I like that approach for this, this character. Um, and probably that's the character I most had fun with, even if it is, you know, the character who's the least emotional about, you know, the case. Um, but I think a lot of people will like it. It's worth checking in, in for. Unfortunately, the big thing for me is that I feel like I've seen this, these characters, most of these characters before, and I've seen the story before. Um, but I will say that it does a good job. I mean, each in the end of each hour has a big revel revelation. They're really going for more of a thriller feel than like a moody character piece feel. And I think that's a nice way to go. But, uh, on the whole, um, while I enjoyed it and I probably will finish out, it's only eight episodes. That's good to know as well. Um, well, I'm sure I will fill out, finish out the season. Um, if you're, if you're tired of crime, crime serials or, you know, missing child kind of cases, I don't know that this is going to change your mind, but if you're interested in the premise, check it out. I think you'll like it. It's, it's well-made. Is that, is that right. you know, on the fence enough? Uh, I think that that sounds appropriately on the fence. Um, I still need to check out Happy Valley, so oh, so many kidnappings to worry about. Let's move on to the next one, and that's State of Affairs. I'm just I've only seen the first episode of this. I'm just going to mention it because it's debuting next week. Um, how about you ask me questions about this? What do What do you want <laughs> right. to know about State of Affairs? Uh, I, I don't want to go too long on this because we've got a lot to talk about, but can you just explain to me the premise and cast of State of Affairs so that we can laugh and move on with our lives? Okay. So State of Affairs stars Katherine Heigl as, as? Charleston Charlie Tucker because uh, she goes by Charlie because that's the kind of girl she is. Uh, and her name is Charleston. Who would do that? What other... Who names their kid after a dance move? I mean, even one that I enjoy as much as the Charleston. Anyways, okay. She is a uh, she's a CIA analyst who is in charge of of putting together the book for the president's daily briefing on uh, the 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 nation's most important like like ten most important security risks. Uh, or, or, or security issues uh, across the world. So, you know, these are the things that the president must know about. She's the one who decides what goes in the book and what doesn't. And, you know, that that's going to give the show its uh, procedural element that I'm sure they'll really enjoy. Alfred Woodward is the first uh, African-American female president. Uh, Constance Payton is the character name there. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's right, Charlie used to be engaged to Alfred Woodard's son, but then he was killed by terrorists. Or was he? 
Okay, I think we I think we've heard enough. So, does this have any saving graces at all? I mean, I'm sure there are some people who will like it. There's there are a couple scenes that I did enjoy. I will say, I'm vaguely intrigued by the the twist at the end the when 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 charlie starts remembering what happened that night she's blocked so much of it out that fateful night that she watched her beloved die um uh, and and of course her memories don't match up with what she's been told happened or the official story and so then she's gonna have to dig and there's rage issues i mean there's a couple things in here that i think are potentially interesting it's just with there's so much other great TV that why would you set aside time? I mean, I I will watch Happy Valley way before I see another episode of State of Affairs. Yeah, and the casting just does not seem ideal to me. No, I just don't believe Catherine. I mean, she's trying. She is, I think she is actually trying, but I will. I don't think I'll ever believe Catherine Heigl as a CIA analyst. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's 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 about. I mean. And it sounds reductive, but it's just, it's true. Yeah, she just she does not, you know, she can, I bought her as, as a badass surgeon Izzy when Izzy was in her badass phases. Uh, I bought her as a lot of different things on Grey's Anatomy. I don't buy her as the, the, the person who puts together the president's daily briefing uh, or is in charge of presenting the the world's biggest security threats to the president i just no i don't yeah nowhere near the gravitas levels required yeah nope nope so that's that's state of affairs i do think it it could do well or it could disappear those are the you know it's created by joe carnahan he should know what he's doing um but yeah watch the missing seriously you watch state of affairs yeah wait it's joe carnahan yep <laughs> oh my god that guy has the most fucked up cv of all time anyway Anyways, let's just move on. Let's move on to Kingdom Eat Your Own Cooking. Uh, I got to say, at the start of this episode, I in my review of the first season at the AV Club, I, I'd seen the first four episodes. One of the things I commented on is that I appreciated the representations of women and that there wasn't, there was some extraneous nudity, but on the whole, it's not that bad. And then this episode opens with such ridiculous extraneous nudity. I was like, oh my God. It's the first time I'm checking out the show in like a month, and this is what it starts with. I mean, it's not great, but I've seen considerably worse. And it, admittedly, they did wait five episodes. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the stuff in the strip club didn't really bother me. Uh, I'm always, if you're going to have a set a scene in a strip club, and I think it worked for the character dynamics they were looking at there, uh, I would rather see people be naked instead of pretend that at a strip club they wouldn't be. Um, so, but no, it was the, really the, the scene with the youngest Kalina that was the least, uh, uh, was the, the more glaring moment for me. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, how do, how do we feel about the incorporation of, we, we get a, a quite a vivid dream sequence that actually opens the episode, if I recall correctly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wasn't sure about it at first, uh, but I think they did a good job of tying it in and I, you know, I like, I always appreciate shows taking some creative uh, chances. So I mean, I think, and I think I come down pro in the end, even though it was a bit jarring. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're they're taking quite a few chances here. I, I really like the visual device of not seeing the mother at all in this episode. Creepy, uh, right? That's very creepy, and the fact that we have no idea really what's going on in that room is a, a really great way to build tension 
uh, that's just a, a great directorial and writing decision there. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, with uh, the, the fight sequence. It was it was fine. Uh, it played out in a very predictable fashion. I wasn't like a huge fan of the editing choices. I wasn't quite clear on how Jay was able to get the upper hand. Maybe I wasn't watching closely enough, but it didn't feel like the mix of choreography and editing was precise enough for me. That being said, when Jay comes home to that beer in that ice bucket... That was probably the most indelible moment of TV watching for me this week. That just looked like the greatest fucking beer of all time. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the fight was a little more confusing. It was certainly more confusing to follow than the one that we had in the pilot. I liked, <laughs> I liked how much, how much they put Jay through. Though I liked that yes. he got his ass kicked, uh, just bleeding all over the place he's so out of it he he happened he manages to turn a, a hold around and get the right hold on the, his opponent and that's what forces the tap out or you know, knocks the guy out or whatever it is because he manages to get his feet in the right place and contort his body in just the right way and if you get the right hold that's all it takes um i think that's a really i don't know if that's accurate but that's what the show presented and if you know i think that's a really interesting difference between something like this uh, MMA and something like boxing and so you know and I think that's I, I get the sense that that's what people like about MMA um, so I like that the show feels specific in that way mm -hmm. I would agree with that um, I th I also like what we get with Matt Loria this week um, they're they're shading his character in slightly unfamiliar ways and I, I like that we still we we don't know how much we can trust his recovery and I think they're 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 getting that knife edge balance just right. And I really liked the way that they were toying with us with what we could expect from Keith, his, uh, his roommate, you know, like it seems like we're building to something like really, really dark and twisted. That's going to happen. And then, no, I just put this dick on the table. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I was going to single out Keith as well because it's such a fun character. I mean, like, I think it really does work and, and you're right. There's this sense that he's just getting, getting so focused in on Ryan and it's like, this is going to lead to some, some really dark messed up thing. And then they, they go, they go another way. And that actor is Paul Walter Hauser. And I, I really think Keith uh, has been a really strong addition to those scenes we get with Ryan. I like that. It's such a different kind of feeling when Ryan is there with his roommate, Keith, than when he's around the gym or, you know, it's a good way to, contrast i guess these these different characters mm -hmm. and i and i like that that flash of uh, potentially the old ryan that we get with that cameraman who just admittedly really won't get out of the goddamn way so oh you, my God. you totally understand you completely understand why he flips out but but just the you know we get a meaner side of matt laurie than i think we've ever gotten and uh it's, it's nice to see that he can bring out the rage without losing uh losing our empathy yeah, when he's the camera's got like, oh yeah, he's throwing up. Let's take lots of pictures. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, you, you've got to be okay. You deserve it now. You whatever happens, you deserve it. And so I like that they don't have him smash. He like takes the camera, but you don't. He doesn't like throw it violently to the ground or anything like that because that would be an expensive camera. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think they do a good job with that stuff. Um, yeah, and there, there's. You know, the, I really like what we get with uh, Bruce Davison. Is that the actor's name? Uh, 
Uh, oh, yes. Yes, that is Bruce Davison. Yeah. I like what we get with Bruce Davison. Um, I, you know, I, I look forward to finding out if the, if, uh, oh, what's her name? Lisa. If Lisa's dad is right about Lisa not wanting kids or Lisa wanting kids or if uh, Alvy is right about Lisa not wanting kids. We have no reason to think Alvy's not right, but uh, the fact that we don't get any sort of indication in the episode about this and we haven't to this point, I think is interesting and that it comes up here. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're doing a really great job with teasing out aspects of the sort of the family mythology and what's true and what isn't like we still don't know exactly what happened between Alvy and his wife the one who's locked in a room that he doesn't know about it i mean they're doing a great job teasing this stuff out gradually in a way that feels uh that feels natural for the progression of the story and and not not belaboring it too much nor withholding too much at a time I mean, there's just a really great sense of balance going on in just about every aspect of the writing yeah well, do you have any final thoughts on Kingdom or shall we move on to Parenthood? Still really enjoying it. Everyone should watch it. Parenthood. Oh, God. I mean, as usual with Parenthood this season, which, I, you know, we've just been checking in on sporadically. There are moments that really work and, and they work really, really well if you don't think about what got us there. I mean, for instance, that scene between Zeke and Joel has some really great moments in it. But then you think, how did we get here exactly? Oh, right. We got here after a whole season of Joel just being a goddamn idiot for no good reason. And that was a theme for me this week. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I like that they've introduced Julia's new boyfriend and the fact that he was her old boyfriend before Joel is also interesting and adds different layers to things. But, yeah, because, yes, Joel was an idiot all last season but also they've got such a life together that it seems kind of ridiculous that when he has been saying all season that he wants to get back together um i think they needed to do have done more with why she isn't giving him another shot like when she was begging him so much to to come back last season and it seemed like they were rekindling or, or at least you know mending fences at the end of last season then here all of a sudden she's got a new boyfriend and you know they're getting divorced and it's like decided or something so maybe what she was waiting for even if she didn't realize it was the kind of declaration that joel makes at the end of the episode i look forward to seeing how they progress that you know moving forward but you know like that scene was really was very good with with zeke and i kept thinking this is just do we need to have this scene we need to have the the potter familius just takes takes you know joel aside and says hey you fight for your marriage it's like he's the one yeah. who's saying and he that's... wants to get back together why isn't yeah you know and, and, and that's Julia. the thing that changes it like, how does that really yeah and there were a few of like... those last season too i don't know if you remember but i was just like how about we ask see what camille thinks about this yeah yeah camille's been like mysteriously like when at one point zeke like yells like hey i'm leaving bye and we, she's just off screen somewhere very strange anyway um yeah and there was a lot of just like people learning lessons this week they just a lot of it didn't work for me and the fact that um uh fuck may whitman um Amber, thank you. The fact that, like, Amber freaking out Amber? this week with uh, being tasked with looking after the kids and thinking about her own pregnancy, like, 
had, had me thinking like why didn't we go over adoption or abortion as an option again uh because she just seems like really psychologically ill prepared for this whole thing yeah i mean when she was having her uh i'm not gonna ever get to you know have booze around the house or have my my drug paraphernalia like yeah yeah you're not not for a long time because you're gonna be a single mom with with a baby and then with a toddler and then with you know a young child so no you don't get to have your 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 uh marijuana paraphernalia your head shop stuff or sitting around your apartment anymore and that should be obvious and that should be something you should have realized before like month six yeah of the pregnancy yeah so yeah there's just there's a lot of individual things that aren't working for me. like i'm i'm curious as to how they'll wrap up the show but it's it's really not holding up to a lot of scrutiny for me these days See, but I still like it when I'm watching it. I still enjoy it, uh, even if I don't. It's not like this was literally the last thing I watched this week because most of the other shows that, you know, uh, they, they I got them off the DVR first. I They were the ones I went to before I went to Parenthood. I was like, I know that I'll probably enjoy this episode of Parenthood, but I didn't feel any urgency to, to, to watch it if I miss it when it first airs. You watched um, the newsroom first. I did watch the newsroom first because I knew we'd we'd want to talk about it. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that I did very much, you know, we, it's been a while, but we did get another Lincoln Mac scene, and I always like those. Uh, I, I like the just like the instant, instantaneous Sarah. Um, it's not about the movie. It's like, but wait, then why is it about the movie? Why would she say it was about the movie if it was like like just the that dynamic worked really well. And then the walking back and forth worked really well. And that hammering home and prompting Hank to go talk to Sandy, uh, about, you know, the fact that he's realized he, he thinks he's Asperger's mm -hmm. and stuff. You know, I think that all worked really well. And, um, you know, it's a nice, I like that they, that they've moved Ruby beyond just straight up bitchy, annoying teenager pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, and actually the Hank and Sandy scene was the only totally successful sequence that didn't, have other problems connecting to other stuff, I think, personally. And it, it had the least to do with the Bravermans, which maybe says something. Yeah, that could be, could be. Um, shall we move on to the affair? Do you have any other final thoughts on Parenthood? No, and I don't have that many thoughts on the affair this week. I will say that I enjoyed it quite a lot more than last week. Uh, I think the more that they fold in the fact that these people have knotted, complicated histories and really difficult family stuff that they're working through uh that the more that they that, that they just sort of tie that into the fabric of the show and not just have it be these people are having an affair but the fact that the affair is just one of many things that's going on that is a way more interesting show to me than the one we got in the cup last couple of weeks i uh yeah I, I thought this was better than the you know maybe the last couple episodes but i still the the affair feels like homework at this point, and uh, I would not be still watching it if we weren't doing the podcast. I gotta say, but I liked that uh, that Sasha. She's still Sasha. She's not Whitney. I know that her name is Whitney, but she's still Sasha yeah. to me. I like that Sasha got more to do. I like that scene in the car. I thought actually that worked pretty well. You know, them actually letting her act a little bit, which was kind of nice. Uh, the I guess I should like that they are comfortable making. All the 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 more tyranny and Dominic West uh, reactions to to everything going on with Whitney, as frustrating as they are, so the the mom's dismissive, uh, nobody tries to kill himself over a couple of tweets thing is just 
so ridiculous. Uh, but then him making it all about himself and, you know, and being like, oh, but I want to keep banging this chick I really like. So let's not leave, even though, you know, it's, it was really hard to to watch that or be engaged by it. But I think I am. I think I should appreciate that rather than them going <laughs> for an easy, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. There's, there were all kinds of difficult to watch moments like that this week. Uh, I mean, uh, notably they, it's still totally bipartite, but they switched the order this week. So I guess that's something. Mm -hmm. um, I found it strange that in her version, there is a sex scene that just doesn't happen in Noah's version. I'm not really sure what that's about. Not sure exactly what the timeline is, so I don't know. I, th uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's meant to be the same day. Okay. Because uh, it seemed like, I didn't know if they were, again, if they were subsequent or overlapping. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, the some of it, you know, like the, the mother character for Allison should have been, should have driven me crazy, and she didn't. And that's an impressive feat, I would say, with that kind of a character. I like that just when you're ready to dismiss her, she does say some insightful stuff about her daughter, um, but then she's horrible at dinner as well. <laughs> yes. You know, like, it's a good balance. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a... I, I agree with you about the homework feeling. Like, it's, it is self-consciously very good TV that I'm still not quite sure what the... I'm still not sure what it is they're trying to say by telling us the story like why is this the story you're telling us and I'm, and we still don't have the full picture yet and it's still frustrating so i don't want to keep hitting the same notes with the affair with the affair every week but it is kind of how it feels yeah at least we finally know who the victim is yes uh which that took way too long five out of ten episodes that's too long to it's true you know. i i do like i like the very nonchalant way that they introduced that fact this week though yeah after several weeks of awkward he's like playing the pronoun game but um yeah, and I will see if there's some sort of other flash forward structure. I would assume there will be, but now with that the questioning is over, you know, at least of these characters, we'll have to see what they do next. Um, but yeah, it's I, I it's still like I said, it still feels like homework. What never feels like homework, I can't wait to watch every week is The Good Wife, Red Zone, and uh, we got more fun inside Alicia's head this week. We got some fun ripped from the headlines details with the soup kitchen. Um, how, how did you feel about this episode? Eh, I don't know. Like there's, uh, there was about half the episode I really liked and half the episode I'm really kind of getting fed up with. Uh, and a lot of, even, even the stuff I liked felt kind of repetitive, like everything with Eli and, uh, and uh, Stephen Pascal. Sorry. He's just Stephen Pascal to me. Um, and, uh, and Alicia Elfman, thank you. And Alicia and the, you know, this is about how you appear, not how you really are. Like, yes, we got these notes already and it's still fun. And Alicia going over it back in her head with the, with that, that particular plot and visual device is still really funny and really insightful, but I'm, I'm waiting for some new beats here. And I feel like this season has in general been a little bit too content with hammering the same notes over and over, but more broadly, my problem with this season right now is that it feels weirdly claustrophobic to me. Like the Good Wife used to be a show that had a whole lot of a whole lot of wheels spinning at once, and now it feels like we spend a lot of our time with three or four characters, 
per episode, and they're usually the same characters, and we've been spending a lot of time on the same plots, and they haven't been moving very quickly, uh, except for the election, which, like, this week, Castro's out of the race, and it's, you could, you, if you weren't paying close enough attention, you would have missed that, which was kind of strange, but I don't know, I'm, uh, maybe it's the pacing, but, uh, but I'm, there, I feel like they're doing less with the ensemble this season, which is frustrating for me. Yeah, the, the stuff with Kalinda feels very disjointed it feels very and much turgid he, yeah it's it's i like that they finally have her stand up to bishop because that needed to happen the fact that it took till the end of this episode for that to happen um and i think that'll potentially tie into how she leaves the show as well uh but and, and again and maybe this is because we've talked about it recently um I don't remember if it was on the podcast or off or off mic, but the fact that Kalinda is, they can't seem to have her in a scene with Alicia. It's always on the phone is getting really frustrating uh, because then she's just not in those scenes. And so then you have to have Alicia. If, if, if Kalinda is going to be this central to what's going on with Carrie and Alicia is going to be this tied into what's going with Carrie Alicia and Kalinda need to be in scenes together. Yeah, especially that that shot of the tele of the conference phone this week was painful in that regard. And they've done a lot more of that recently because they're tied into this because they because they work at the same place now, which they did in last season. That has made it just a bit more glaring. Um, I like that they brought back Rita Wilson for that role. I think that that was that was fun. The one I I do need to see back. It's been a while. Martha Plimpton. Let's get Martha Plimpton back on the show. Uh, the stuff with with uh, Lewis Canning, you know, with the 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 surgery and all that. I thought that was actually really nice. I like that they sort of replace the um, congenial adversaries thing that they were doing with Finn here with uh with loose canning uh so far there's no signs of finn joining the firm what do you think oh it'll happen it, it's just a matter of time um i like the entitlement stuff and I'm like yes she's like you're just so good he's like oh yeah i'm yeah. i basically am yeah i like the way he takes the saint title away basically away from her uh, I thought it was a little I, I, the the whole rape case thing felt really shoehorned in to me this week, which I thought was really unfortunate. I would have liked to see that get a full episode, or or at least the the focus of an episode, uh, because it, I thought it was interesting. I like that they brought back Owen. I you know I think that was it's a fun recurring character, and that it's a nice way to check in with where that relationship is at and what that means with you know Alicia and her campaign. Um, but they could have done a lot more with that, and. Like we could have seen, like Kalinda could have been checking into stuff at the at the you know at the the uh, the college, and you know instead of that just being like a throwaway one scene, Kalinda's taking a picture of a thing. There she could have been talking to other people instead of having her tied in with uh, all of the Carrie stuff. I would have liked to have seen more time there. I guess I just think it was a there was a lot more potential in that storyline than the amount of time it got. Well, especially because, you know, we, we have all those scenes with um, with sort of the campus regulatory board, and that's sort of the, that's our novelty court of the week. And that stuff is, you know, that's really loaded material. That's yeah. the notion of, of whether or not campuses should, should handle security matters themselves is a really loaded issue, and there's so much you could do with that. And they do a little bit, like the, they have the whole texting thing, and that's kind of neat, but I don't know, it felt like a missed opportunity. Yeah, and it's also... 
it's the kind of thing that this show has it's the kind of issue that I feel like the good wife in the past would have championed. It would have been like, no, this is the kind of shit that goes down all the time, guys. This is really happening. We should be outraged at the way that so many colleges, you know, the, when the, they get the line about most inquiries take less than an hour. And Alicia didn't immediately stand up and say, uh, you're trying to argue that we had due process because we you didn't investigate an entire claim of a rape in an hour are you kidding me yeah i feel like good wife is not opt is not operating at at, at its full potential right now and it, it 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 depresses me because i'm reviewing it weekly and it's it's hard for me to, to it's i don't want to be disappointed in the good wife but i feel like it, it it can just it can do all these things so much better the power of weekly reviewing right the difference yep. you know because i don't have to do that so i can just watch it and go eh, it could have been better but i really liked it so I do go. need to see Eli's daughter again, though. I'm saying next week, bring her back. Mm-hmm. But let's move on. Uh, we're going to try to keep this short. We'll see how that goes. Uh, to the <laughs> newsroom premiere, Boston. Should we be glad that we got so little, I guess, judgment of the other news the, of CNN and Fox and, you know, in their coverage of of uh, Boston? This seems like the team at ACN are far more understanding than they have been in the past. Uh, well, I mean, Aaron Sorkin only has room for so much indignation per episode, and he re- he reserves almost all of it for the internet, which... Uh... Uh, I mean, the, the yes, it is absolutely true that BuzzFeed and Twitter completely fucked up with the Boston Marathon. Reddit. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And Reddit, etc. And by extension, Perez Hilton, apparently, which I didn't know about. Mm. Um, not surprising. Yes, you're absolutely right, Aaron Sorkin. But you just know that when that happened in real life, Aaron Sorkin was like, yes, my pretties. Yes. <laughs> and like, couldn't, th- there's a reason this is the premiere. And there's a reason that, 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 that argument is so front and center. And that whole sequence was just so painful to watch. And there's a few, there's some good stuff in this episode, but then there's all the scenes of anyone ranting. And it, it just felt especially egregious in this episode, in particular, uh, the rant that Jeff Daniels gets near, like on the rooftop at the end of the episode, was just so painfully Sorkin. Yeah, I, I actually think that last scene plays out really well until that until until he <clears> comes <throat> back and is like, "No, I'm going to speechify in a way that we were mocking earlier in this episode." Yeah, uh, the oh God, okay, yes, obviously, and you know, I think the newsroom, uh, I think this episode, the way that they. Uh, I really like the scene where we get the uh, was it Don walking through the way that someone's life was ruined for at least a few days um, mm-hmm. when they were misidentified by the internet as this one of the bombers. I think that was really effective, and that's an excellent thing for the show to bring up, especially given how Aaron Sorkin feels about the internet. But you know, and and he does give Grace Gummer. The fact, you know, he does give the, a couple lines to the a couple characters about how most of the stuff that they confirmed she knew and she had like multiple Twitter sources on way ahead and that it was there was a lot that was correct out there as well. But then they're just so de- condescending towards her and towards, you know, this notion of citizen journalism. And especially, yes, obviously this is set earlier, but Aaron Sorkin should have been following some of these other situations around the world where the only way that 
seemingly to get unfiltered, uh, less media controlled or biased accounts of what's actually happening in civil unrest areas or in the immediate aftermath of some, some things is through places like Twitter um, that don't have, at least for now, uh, results filtered based on what they think you want to read mm-hmm. uh, is yeah, it's astonishing to me that somebody like Aaron Sorkin can't see the value of that. Uh, and so the condescension, it, it, it's, it's, and I'm trying to not let that affect my appreciation of the show because my personal politics should not affect my assessment of the quality of the show. It's just the fact that they go back to it so many times. Yeah, it gets really painful. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, let's say nice things. The yeah. Don and Sloan stuff continues to be good and fun and have that screwball energy that Sorkin's actually good at and can do without being insulting. I like that they add in Christmasina. To, to that dynamic as well. He works so well with Sloan there. <laughs> just the whole Brandy and Blair thing was, was great. There's a lot of fun, and I like that they're apparently tying Christmasina in more this season. Yes, and having him be more than just a uh, corporate stooge who gets in the way of real news. And I mean, it's kind of a forced thing that they've, that they've messed around with, but I, I still appreciate it. I don't appreciate the fact that Neil... Uh, Dev Patel is getting literally the exact same plot beats he got in the exact same order that he got last season, except instead of Occupy Wall Street, it's basically Edward Snowden. Uh, and the way that it's playing out with everyone thinking he's silly, but then no, like you really pursue it, but he's the outsider because blah, that's, oh my God, we've done this exact plot before. Yeah, I, I have more faith that they won't mess this up though, because it's a fictional uh, situation. <laughs> so because it's not Occupy Wall Street, I have more faith that they will do a better job with it. And uh, I think some of this stuff is actually really interesting. I like that they have him make such a critical mistake right away. That's uh, that's the Marsha Gay Harden character, right? That's the lawyer they're bringing in? Uh, I would assume so, yes. Yeah, and, the you know, I, I like where that seems to be going. I think it, it sets up a good arc, at least for him, if not for much of the show over the course of the season. Uh, I like uh, really the way that all these different threads come together in the final scene until we get the speech flying where it is very effective to me. I like what they give Maggie to do. I like that they let her succeed. I like that. Um, what's it called? I like that. The, you know, the Mac and, and will stuff like that's as, that's as relationshipy as the episode gets. And on the whole, I think it does that stuff well. And I like that there's not more than that. Uh, there is a lot here that I surprisingly like. Yes. There's just the rest of it also. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on the newsroom? What are you looking forward to or, or looking forward to maybe not enjoying, I don't know, this season? I always look forward to talking about the newsroom. I, I, we should keep it a little bit shorter this week, but I'm sure there'll be much to discuss. I mean... Aaron Sorkin published that whole thing this week about how he's quitting TV after this, which may or may not be true. But the fact that he thinks that he only has one successful series is interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, Let's leave it there for now. Conversation for another time. I sort of, you know, started the newsroom with dread in my heart and ended up having a lot more fun than I expected. So that's fun. And drunk, uh, drunk Charlie is always going to be fun to me, too. So, you know, there's that. Uh, so with that in mind, what wins your week in drama? I'm, I'm going to give it to Kingdom for handling a lot of stuff that could be handled so very poorly with quite a lot of panache. Yeah, I think that's a fair a fair assessment. I'm going to give it, 
Yeah, I just can't help it. I'm giving it to the good wife. Even subpar good wife is still fabulous. So, you know, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I had fun, fun with the show this week. Um, honorable mention to kingdom though, I guess as well. All right. So now a few show notes. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonslate.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings on at Sound on TV. You can send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can find us in iTunes where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And as, as ever, we would appreciate any uh, ratings or reviews of the show there. It does help other people find us. You can also find us both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Simon, you are? At Sucker Howell. And what is our question of the week? Uh, so let's say Sorkin is retiring from TV. So we can swap souls, right? So Sorkin leaves TV and someone else leaves movies and joins TV instead. Who will it be? Hmm. Well, I mean, the easy answer for me is Joss Whedon. Because I don't really... I mean, as much as I did have a lot of fun with, with the Avengers, uh, and I'm sure I will enjoy Avengers too. Uh, it would be nice to see him back fully. You know, like I want to see a uh, creative control Joss Whedon show and see what if he has one in him currently that he's interested in. That's an, so that's an easy pick. Um, it's maybe not the most, you know, groundbreaking or surprising pick. You know who I'm going to go with? I'm going to go with Deborah Granick. You know who Deborah Granick is? The name is very familiar. She directed Winter's Bone. You oh, know yeah, what she's directed right. since? Nothing. Because apparently she can't seem to get any projects off the ground. Somebody get her on TV instead, because I feel like we could use her around. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great to me. So let us know who you would uh, see. Now, does it need to be a a, a, a writer to fit with uh, the, the Sorkin thing, or can it be anyone? Creative Preferably, force. but it, it should be someone with, with a similarly distinct voice. Okay. That works. So let us know what your picks are. I look forward to hearing from, from, from everyone. But, but for now, it's time to get head to the DVD shelf. So we're going to take a break and come back with Caroline Sita of the AV Club and uh, debating Doctor Who to talk about Star Trek Voyager. We're alone in an uncharted part of the galaxy. We've already made some friends here and some enemies. We have no idea of the dangers we're going to face. But one thing is clear. Both crews are going to have to work together if we're to survive. That's why Commander Chakotay and I have agreed that this should be one crew. A Starfleet crew. And as the only Starfleet vessel assigned to the Delta Quadrant, we'll continue to follow our directive. To seek out new worlds and explore space. But our primary goal is clear. Even at maximum speeds, it would take 75 years to reach the Federation. But I'm not willing to settle for that. There's another entity like the caretaker out there somewhere who has the ability to get us there a lot faster. We'll be looking for her. And we'll be looking for wormholes, spatial rifts, or new technologies to help us. Somewhere. Along this journey, we'll find a way back. Mr. Paris, set a course for home.
We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolsuk, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are adding to our Star Trek canon by uh, having the lovely Caroline Sita from the AV Club and Debating Doctor Who back to the podcast to talk about Star Trek Voyager. Caroline, welcome back. Thank you. I am very excited to be back here with you guys. Now, we've already talked about Star Trek Next Generation, and we've talked about DS9 as well, DS9. Uh, I would not have anticipated we would be covering Voyager before the original series, but as long as it's not Enterprise and I don't have to play that terrible theme song, I'm good with it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, I had a lot of memory. I remembered sitting down to watch the pilot of this when it first aired uh, with, with my dad uh, and, and my, my, I think my mom as well. My dad's the bigger of the Trek fans in our family. But uh, so th- it was interesting to watch some of this with uh, fresh lens. And, you know, there are certain things that I remembered pretty accurately and enjoyed. And there are certain things that I can't believe I didn't notice more the first time um, in, in diving in with this series. But before we get into all of that, Caroline, what made you want to talk about Voyager? Yeah. Do you mean what made me want to take on this really foolhardy challenge of defending <laughs> what I think is Probably the most hated Star Trek show. I know a lot of people have problems with Enterprise, but I think it tends to be less kind of vocal and visceral. And really, Voyager is the one that people really kind of rail against. Um, So I always like a challenge. Uh, So I definitely wanted to take it on for that reason. But I also, you know, I don't want to deny that Voyager has flaws because it has a lot of them. But I I mainly want to celebrate the things about the show that do work. And I think that there are things that work really well. I think kind of to understand Voyager, you need to sort of look at the context in which it was made and which, you know, they had just had the next generation, a really successful show that accomplished a lot. And that had run for seven years. They had launched Deep Space Nine, which I think was really kind of trying to take the darker elements of next generation and kind of run with that. And then I think Voyager sort of took the more lighthearted elements of next generation and and tried to, you know, run in that direction. So yes, it's not as dark as something like Deep Space Nine, even, you know, the, the best of next generation. Um, But I also think Voyager really kind of like embraces its nerdiness in a really charming way. Uh, I really like it for that sake. And then, of course, I really, really appreciate uh, as a woman who looks at media through a feminist lens a lot. I very much appreciate having a female captain and really having a lot of attention paid to the female characters on Voyager, which I think is definitely not something Star Trek had a particularly good track record on in the past. Well, just looking at that, diving right in with that element, I know that for me, in rewatching a lot of Deep Space Nine <laughs> for that DVD shelf, uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to, to to be impressed by the women on that show and and the breadth of them and the you know just the fact that the most badass characters on that show were the women and in general i really enjoyed them uh when i watched the pilot back for this it was hilarious to me because while yes the first thing i think of with voyagers i think of uh i I think of captain janeway and then i think of all of the janeway and seven of nine stuff that we get later on which is i would argue the heart of the show um but I did not remember, for example, that the first scene with Janeway, about three lines in, they feel the need to have, oh, my dad liked you. I guess you're okay then. So they they feel the need to, they, instead of just introducing this female captain as this really strong, uh, confident uh, leader, as somebody who, of course, she's in charge of the ship. Why would that even be a question? It wasn't 
seemingly a question back in the original series, let alone now in Voyager. They feel the need to have um, her condoned by two different men and therefore the audience can accept her because Paris does. Wow. It, it does feel like they're they're kind of taking, they're taking a while to find their feet, I think, uh, with setting up Janeway. Like, I think, you know, it's it's unfortunate that this felt like it was controversial in some way to have a female captain, but I do feel like that was the sense, and so they maybe felt like they needed to establish that a little bit more. I agree that Kira on Deep Space Nine is probably my favorite female character in the Trek universe, um, and then probably, I think, followed by Seven of Nine and Bolana and Janeway. Um, but anyway, I, I do agree that it, it kind of takes a little bit to find its feet. But I think once that initial wonkiness uh, kind of wears off, I do really appreciate that Janeway is allowed to be um, feminine and maternal without sort of losing her strength. And that she is very science driven, like Voyager, even though the science is not in any way accurate it likes the idea of celebrating science and i like the idea that we have a female captain who is is kind of the most nerdy of all the captains i would say you know she's not the kind of intellectual that picard was and she's not kind of the rogue that um kirk was and and just sort of uh i guess this goes a little more hard to find but he's very like fatherly i think to, to how he deals with things and she's allowed to be very feminine, I think, once I agree they get past whatever weird wonkiness they need to set up <laughs> in uh, The Caretaker. Well, you mentioned uh, that the femininity and, you know, because I, I wanted to counterpoint <laughs> very interesting way to introduce your captain. I can't think of any other. None of the male captains are introduced by having another character condone them and celebrate them because of their dad. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, but then later in the pilot, you know, just and I got to give some credit to to Kate Mulgrew because just a little, a little moment like her call to her boyfriend about her dog does so much to humanize that character. And it was little moments like that, that I really appreciated, uh, you know, interspersed throughout the, the whole series in this watch of the show. And it, I was, I was really impressed with her. I was like, why, you know, if only the show had more of that, like these little moments of heart and relatability, I think I could have liked the show a lot more, but I've been holding off. Uh, Cause I, there's lots of things we'll get into. Lots of things about that don't work. Um, I'm very aware of them, as I'm sure you are as well, Caroline. What I need to know is, Simon, had you seen any Voyager before this DVD shelf? And if not, what were your, what was your awareness of the show leading into this? <clears throat> uh, it's possible that I saw some of it as a kid. I mean, I was aware of the existence of Janeway and of the show, uh, certainly and through pop culture osmosis. I didn't have any specific memory of any individual episodes. Uh, remind me, because this is driving me insane. D was I there for Deep Space Nine? Did I do that? Yeah. Why do I have no memory of Deep Space Nine? Must have been some I... time travel. Uh, somebody went in and erased your brain, I would say. Very Star Trek answer, I, who's I have even to the assume. Who's even the captain on Deep Space Nine? Cisco? <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Avery Brooks? Nothing. It's all gone. Yeah, it's that was all gone. Episode eighty of the podcast. There, so it's been oh, a while. No wonder I can't remember it. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so don't ask me to. I'm telling you now. Don't ask me to rank the treks because I don't remember them. That at just all, makes me apparently. sad. Okay, but sorry. But what else? So, what did you think of Voyager? Uh, well, as I'm sure I've said every time we review Star Trek, and again, I don't remember. But <laughs> every time we review Star Trek, I always only ever have time for somewhere between. 15 and 30 episodes at best uh which me that's and usually they, that's, that's not bad yeah, but I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't it's nothing to, to laugh at 
well, considering they run for hundreds of episodes, and also considering I always run off a curated list provided by a guest, in this case, I went with your list, Caroline, and um, it's almost not fair because if you're not seeing the bad episodes, uh, which it's Star Trek, so some of it must be absolute shit, um, then you're not really getting an honest representation of what it is. So I'm I can really only speak to the good episodes, which is for the most part what I watch. You did you did have a suggestion for worst episode. I didn't have time to watch it. Unfortunately, probably for the best. Yeah, I recommended Threshold, which is. I think famously like one of the worst episodes in any version of Star Trek in which um, in which uh, Tom Paris like ends up becoming a giant lizard and turns Janeway into a lizard and they have lizard babies that they leave on a planet. And then the episode ends with, haha, let's never talk about that again. That and sounds Star amazing. Star Trek fans have agreed not to talk about it. I actively remember that one. I remember most of that episode probably and i didn't that's not one of the ones i revisited (laughs) but the least surprising aspect of what you just said is that you said oh there's a worst voyager episode and the first words out of your mouth were tom paris because i've watched a bunch of episodes and i understand why some people might think he has value but whenever tom paris gets a scene to himself that doesn't involve any other characters uh he routinely exposes himself to be the worst yeah Tom Paris is the worst and in a way that it, it's funny because, of course, Caroline, the first, the first thing you said was the female characters on the show are, are really interesting and it, the show is far more interested in them just by virtue of having uh, a female captain. It's going to be more interested and focused on the women on the show than, I mean, come on, I love TNG, but mm, there's not a lot to pick from there. Are you <laughs> nope. kidding me? And that's from a... Trek, you know, I'm a Trekkie. Trek, I can't say Trekker. I can't do it. I'm a Trekkie. Uh, <laughs> I always go Trekkie, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's also because the men, that's also because the men on this show are, I mean, I have a very soft spot in my heart for the Doctor. I love the Doctor. Here, Robert Picardo is fabulous. And I also have a surprisingly big place in my heart for the mega nerd that is uh, Harry Kim. Yeah. But uh, that's about it. Can I can I ask a question? I'm sorry because I haven't seen all the episodes, but it it's very confusing to me when you get to season 5, season 6 and Kim is still an ensign. What more does he need to do to get fucking promoted? <laughs> it is a good question and one that the actor Garrett Wong also had. He like famously kind of would always go up to the producers and be like, "Hey, could Harry be promoted?" And then it just became this running joke of the fact that he never got promoted, despite the fact that all of the ca- other characters around him were getting promoted. So I think I think they forgot about it, and then once they realized, they were like, "This will be funny if he just never gets a promotion." But it's just sad. Like he gets every flesh-eating disease, and he gets killed and then replaced yeah. with another Kim. Yeah, who they still they, that one doesn't get promoted either. So. <laughs> Anyway, I just I know you're like bringing this up as a joke and it is really funny. And I actually think the show does a good job of acknowledging sort of its own nerdiness or Pollyannishness at times um, so that they do kind of do these call out to these things. Like the fact that whenever Harry gets a girlfriend, she like ends up dying or is an alien, you know, imposter or something. It's very self-referential in a way that I find pretty charming. Um, I could see it rubbing people the wrong way. It's a show that doesn't really take itself very seriously. And I think you can get on that wavelength with it and enjoy it. Or you can be like, Hey, you know, I prefer that my TV shows are not making fun of themselves while you're watching it. But I do think there's a way to appreciate sort of the way it calls itself out. You know, like Paris is kind of the worst. And yet he also is like, it's like intentionally the worst. Like he's just, he just loves all this like 
holodeck stuff from the 40s and like his one biggest dream is to reenact these captain proton serials and and there's a sense of like our bad boy you know our rebel without a cause is just really a nerd at heart like nerd is just the word that i use to describe voyager and i think i think there's a way to enjoy that rather than sort of see it as a flaw of the show see but if they would maybe embrace that and like go really go go to it that would work it's it's that every uh you know like they'll do stuff like the Captain Proton stuff and then they're asking you to to know he really is the bad boy pilot who is living on the edge and sexually you know is really inappropriate <laughs> with everyone always and the show th- the show thinks he's cool mm-hmm. in a way like way too much when, once they if they had just found like realized that the between the writing and the performance character was not cool i could have seen them going to a really interesting sort of sort of fun like um dr bashir kind of place yeah. with pairs but instead they don't steer into the skid they just stick rigidly to this conception of of who paris is and i think really i don't think chakotay works most of the time either but if if you replace those two characters you know, if you want, if they're so committed to that type, they needed to bring in a different character, have the different character join the crew to be that type, and that could have worked. Or they needed to change to adapt the character over time, and they don't do either. I do think Chicote works in a couple of episodes that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, in usually in the in the episodes where things get really hairy, and like Janeway's command is in some way threatened, or like things are just getting real dark, then it's good to have Chicote as more than just guy who hangs around or like just like cardboardy sounding board um it's weird in the in the premiere though the like the i hate to go back to the pilot but that all that like weird anti-indian sentiment that paris has and then seems to disappear later uh maybe that i don't know maybe that comes up again in episodes that i didn't watch but uh i don't know chakotay seems to alternate between being a real person and not being a real person uh, yeah i think that's totally fair I don't think he's enough of a real person. I don't think it's, he's a real person frequently enough to say alternate. <laughs> when the show is, is like goes, oh, yeah, Chicote, why don't we try to make him a character for an episode? It works. Uh, the They needed to really commit one way or the other with the character instead of, like, every time we get, it felt like, and it's, I didn't rewatch many Chicote episodes for this, but as I recall, pretty much every time there's a Chakotay episode, it's like spiritual Native American stuff, and then they, he goes back to being, you know, like completely defined by his uh, the the actor or the character's ethnicity or background, or whatever they want to say it is, and then back to being a cardboard cutout. He could be any person. He's not distinct at all. Immediately after that. I think Chakotay tended to be stronger in the first couple of seasons, which unfortunately are the not as good seasons. So if you're going to revisit the show, you're probably going to do like season three through six, whereas the first couple, I think, are where Chakotay was a little bit better defined. I agree that on the one hand, it was so awesome to have a a Native American character on the show. On the other hand, it felt like the writers did zero research into any sort of real Native American culture and just sort of use these stereotypes, which was really unfortunate. They tried to course correct that sort of toward the end. I think it was probably too little too late. Um, But what's fascinating to me is that there are a couple, you know, male characters that are pretty shallowly defined on Voyager, for sure. I think Chakotay's one. Paris is kind of one. He gets, once he's with Bellana, he gets a little bit better. Harry can, you could argue, is one. Um, And then I think a lot of people bring that up as like a huge flaw of Voyager. Whereas when you look at the next generation, I mean, Crusher and Troy similarly had zero character development 
or, you know, solid. They were fine. The idea of them was fine. But there it's presented as, well, of course, like, that's just the way it is too bad. And, you know, me as a woman watching this <laughs> show, like, I don't think that's okay. And so I guess mm -hmm. it's okay to me that in Voyager, you know, three women got great character development and a couple dudes didn't, like, I just feel like it's a fair reversal. So I guess it doesn't bother me as much as maybe it bothers other people. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do find it fascinating, though, like, especially maybe it was it was happening in the other shows and it didn't bother me as much or it didn't occur to me as much. I guess it didn't bother me. But, like, it's always fascinating to me watching a show like Voyager where this the science-y, science-ish ideas get so far out and you're you're dealing with, like, temporal warfare and you know there's a mention at some point of of of, spe of a of a species that has uh, five different genders etc et but ultimately like no matter what species you are ultimately you're boys and girls <laughs> and like <laughs> and everybody wants to bang the borg chick even though she's a borg because she happens to have a nice human shape and like <laughs> i don't know like i find trek so funny because it's so progressive in some ways and so not in others and watching those things interact is always funny to me i totally agree and i think seven of nine is such a great encapsulation of that because you have a lot of fans who who i mean probably just like her because she's attractive you have fans who explicitly don't like her because they feel like she was just inserted for sex appeal and then you have fans like me who can acknowledge yes this was a in a character design that they inserted for sex appeal what they actually did with the character both the writers and jerry ryan the actress i think is incredibly progressive because yes she looks sexy she is the least sexual character i think that has ever been on star trek which is a show without very many sexual characters but she is very prudish um she's aggressively awkward like kind of mean at times can be very self-centered because she has this arc of rediscovering her humanity so it's a shame to me that the character gets written off as as just the sexy lady um which she is but i think she's also so much more and i actually think jerry ryan is one of the strongest actors that has been on on any trek franchise and it's a shame that she is not kind of remembered as such i think because she happens to be attractive. Like they actually do some really cool stuff with seven of nine. And I, I wish that that was celebrated more for sure. Yeah. I think that, uh, that is definitely the case. Certainly the, the oh my goodness, this it's the, it's the show have, having their cake and eating it too, because she looks like Jerry Ryan and they dress her in plastic, basically <laughs> in a cat suit. Uh, and then they write her to be this really interesting, uh, developed character. They they keyed in quickly to the Janeway and Seven of Nine dynamic, and that I think worked like gangbusters for the show. Um, but for a certain segment of the audience, they can't get past the appearance uh, to, to to really see all the potential that that character had or had. You know, the, all, all the all the show was able to do with her. And apparently, one of those people uh, allegedly is uh kate mulgrew and that led to a lot of problems on the set uh shall we talk about some of that stuff i mean it's really a shame that the the show started out as this you know we're gonna have a female captain very female centric and then came to be defined by how they were dressing seven of nine and yet like you said carly so many people don't actually look past that to see all of these interesting character things that the show was doing yeah, I totally agree. And it, it is a shame that there's 
been some heavy gossip that um, Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan did not get along very well. Um, although I don't think that that's really reflected in their performances. Whatever personal issues they were having, I actually think that they do really, really lovely work when they're on screen together. So I, at least it didn't affect their, I guess, their professional lives in any way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is where I recommend our listeners, anyone curious about stuff going on in Voyager, uh, go over to a fabulous podcast called Geeks On, which is unfortunately very uh, sporadic at this point, but go into their archives, and there's an interview with Garrett, uh, with Gareth Wong, Garrett Wong, uh, to, where he talked about his experience on, on uh, Voyager and how the producers told all of the human actors, actors playing humans, that they should be bland so that the aliens could be more colorful and interesting. And, you know, maybe that's part of why some of the human characters are less defined and forgettable because they what? the actors were directed, according to Garrett Long, to do that. Uh, yeah. Geeksound.com. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about Seven of Nine, the performance and the character, is that I wonder how much of it is, like, the intention is that she's more so like she's not quite human she's not quite borg uh but the way that she's written and i i admire what they're trying to do but i i kind of she kind of can't help but fall into that perceived notion of of like the woman who's beautiful but is just a little bit wacky and just needs fixing like i don't think it's intentional i don't think it's the fault of the people who made the show i just think that in terms of like sexist mores that's sort of like that's just sort of how people ended up perceiving that character does that make any sense yeah it does and that certainly could be i, I think it's a, a case and this is sort of with voyager across the board that people perceive it differently than it really is and again it has lots of flaws but i'm not sure the flaws that people point out are really the the flaws that the show actually has if that makes sense and i think that's probably the case with seven of nine um to me the two biggest things that people hold against voyager is that it really kind of squandered its premise which was that you know you have these two sort of um antagonistic ships and they are trapped seven thousand years away seven thousand light years away from the alpha quadrant and the delta quadrant and they have to work together so that seems like you know it's going to be all this fun conflict and and cool storylines to tell. The show is not interested in telling that story. It's mostly interested in getting this crew together and just having them work as one. Um, and then there is really no serialization here. It's a very episodic show. Um, so, you know, something can kind of be resolved at the episode then, even if Voyager is sort of hanging on by a thread, by the next episode, the ship's gonna be sort of ship shape and working again. Um, those are two legitimate criticisms, but pretty much by like the third episode in, you can see that the show has established itself in that way, that it's going to be episodic and that it's not going to be conflict heavy. So when I hear people complaining about that, you know, in season seven, it's like, well, you already have known, like they they were not interested in telling those stories. So it, it seems like an odd flaw to point out when you could sort of look at what the show is at least trying to achieve and whether it achieved that not what you wish it had achieved and whether it achieved that if that makes sense well and again that's when you point people to Battlestar Galactica mm -hmm. because that's or even Deep Space Nine well that's what you know that's what this is where you have the the, the ship stranded out in the middle of nowhere trying to survive uh, everybody only really has probably two uniforms so after a certain number of exploding consoles where are they getting these new <laughs> uniforms from? That is something that, that Battlestar Galactica is interested in. That is something Voyager really doesn't care about. Uh, so <laughs> if, if you want that show, it exists. And, and I, 
I could be wrong. I want to say that they talked to Ron Moore because Ron Moore was very involved in DS9. In Deep Space Nine, yeah. They talked to him about Voyager, and he was involved at some point for some length, and then just was like, "They're not. This is not the show they want to do." And Battlestar Galactica is basically the show he wanted Voyager to be, at least mm-hmm. at first. Um, so, so that other shows out there. Um, this is the having them get stranded out in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere was so that Deep Space Nine and Voyager could exist at the same time, at least for a season or two, I think, uh, and not conflict with each other. And there could be new aliens and there could be a reason why they don't just call the Federation and have them solve all their problems. Uh, it's really a, it's a plot contrivance more than anything else. And uh, that could be disappointing to some. But again, you have to look at the sh- what the show is, not what you want the show to be. Should we, uh, should we maybe mention there's uh, this guy that was involved uh, creatively quite a lot? Who is relevant to our interests? Go for it. Uh, Brian Fuller? Yep. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. he. I mean, he's one of those writers who, who I want to say he got started on Star Trek, just like Jane Espenson as well. Uh, her first script was, was Star Trek. And uh, I'm curious for you, not because you are so familiar with Fuller. Like for me, I didn't know Brian Fuller when I was watching Voyager uh, the first time. Uh, for you, Simon, did you pick up on Fullerisms in the episodes of his that you watched? Uh, I mean, I didn't see, as it turns out, because I checked, uh, I didn't see any Fuller scripted like at individual episodes because it just didn't work out that way. But I did see uh, a bunch of episodes for, during his tenure as story editor, during which I assume he had quite a lot of input in the individual episodes. And that ended up including a lot of the super dark stuff like Year of Hell. Um, which can I just mention there's stuff in those episodes that like, uh, I, I just recorded an interstellar podcast earlier today and I've been reading people's reviews of that and everyone's sort of you know, people clapping that movie on the back for like dealing with hard sci-fi stuff in the multiplex. Like, I'm sorry, that movie is not dealing with hard sci-fi stuff any more than random ass episodes of Star Trek were doing in the mid nineties. <laughs> I will say no spoilers at all for Interstellar, but after watching Interstellar, I would highly recommend um, watching a very excellent Voyager episode called Blink of an Eye, uh, which kind of deals with theory of relativity in a really fascinating way. And I think makes a very lovely companion piece to that and also just stands as, I think, one of Voyager's best episodes. So that is definitely on my recommended list. And actually, and I would say that 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 again, not spoiling, but I think that episode deals with those issues in a way co- more complicated and thornier and less two-dimensional way than Interstellar does. But I'm also, you know, not, I know you're a bigger fan of that movie than I am, so I'll shut up now. Um, <laughs> but I I do think whether or not there are strict Fullerisms during his tenure, people who who have seen more uh, than I would would have to speak to that. But I do think that there is, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of momentum uh, present during his tenure in the episodes that I watched that felt in keeping with what he's done, although I'm sure he wasn't as developed uh, a writer as he is now. Yeah, I'm just kind of scrolling through them now, and, and he's definitely written some, like, really great episodes of the show. Raven, which is one that's all about Seven of Nine, is one that I really like. Um, Barge of the Dead is another one that he wrote that um, is about a character we haven't talked to yet, about yet. Uh, Bolana Torres, who's the other kind of important female 
uh, member of this cast, who I also think does not get enough credit for being a really, really great character, um, who I think is kind of largely forgotten when people celebrate Star Trek and is the rare female character who's just allowed to be angry for no reason. Uh, that's just not a thing that we see women doing often on screen. So I, she's always been a very important character to me. Any thoughts, Simon? Uh, I, I'm i I'm cool with Belena. The whole Belena-Paris pairing um, uh, never really made a lot of sense to me, if only because uh, whenever whenever it's Blairis, um, I don't know what you want to call Blairis. them. Blairis? Blairis. Whenever it's them, he doesn't seem to be Paris anymore. He's just like supportive husband-ish guy. So he doesn't his his like his awfulness just seems to be nullified into an ocean of being blandly supportive. But uh, I don't know. I, I didn't. I don't. I don't think I really got to any episodes that were individually hers. Mostly, I got Blairis episodes. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I had some issues with uh, with some of the Blana stuff early on, where they. I just. I was a little troubled by how they def- chose to define her Klingon stuff it, it was like oh the klingon in me is coming out and that's i can't control that i was like that does not feel like uh, granted it's interspecies so it's you know if it's not necessarily the biracial parallel that maybe they're looking for it's not a one to one parallel there but um so i had some trouble with some of that stuff at first did it feel to you like they were saying oh it's a klingon time of the month um, no, it was, it wasn't even that specific. It was, it was like, oh, every now and again, I just get angry because I'm a Klingon, not because I'm an angry person, but because <laughs> there's Klingon in me and that just randomly makes me angry. Um, I don't know, like a pawn far thing or something, but, um, so I had some trouble with that, but it, that was just, you know, I was just noticing that more early on. And then as they got more comfortable with the character, I, I agree. I think she's underappreciated and I enjoy that character and that performance, um, the, the big, I've already mentioned him. The, one of the big highlights though, for me is always the doctor. I love the doctor. Uh, Robert Picardo is fabulous and so much fun in this role. Um, any thoughts on the doctor, Caroline, or more I, thoughts on Bolana? Um, a fan of the doctor, just like Bolana. I think the doctor is one of the most successful characters on the show for sure. Um, he's definitely in that mold of the outsider character that you have in someone like Odo on Deep Space Nine or Data on The Next Generation or, of course, Spock in the original series. So he kind of slots into that role, which then Seven of Nine actually slots into as well. So you have this interesting thing where for the first three seasons, the Doctor is the outsider role. Um, then he kind of figures out his place a little bit more on the ship. They kind of lose that thread a tiny bit. But once they bring Seven of Nine on, then he becomes her mentor. So you have this cool thing where an outsider is mentoring an outsider. And I think they actually had some really cool sort of use of that storytelling. There's an episode called Someone to Watch Over Me where it's essentially like Pygmalion, like the doctor is trying to help um, Seven sort of discover her humanity. And and I think that the way they can connect is really cool and really interesting. And, and it actually speaks to something that Voyager sometimes does well and sometimes it doesn't live up to this potential. But I think oh, more so than a lot of Treks, actually, they had very clearly defined relationships between all sorts of different people. Um, so you have the way that, you know, you normally kind of, you think of Bolana and Janeway are very much a team because they're both sort of science driven, but Bolana has this history with the Maquis. So that gives her a connection to Chakotay and Tuvok was um, sort of a spy for the Maquis. So that's, that's a tension there. They have a lot of really interesting character dynamics, really for almost every single pairing of characters. Now they didn't always use those as well as they could have, but they were there. And I think that they actually kind of helped color a lot of scenes that 
maybe would have felt a little bit more boring on other versions of Trek where characters didn't have any sort of backstory. There, there was at least something there to hold on to. Um, and I think you probably see that best in the way the Doctor and Seven relate to each other. Yeah. And plus, we got lots of I'm a Doctor, not a jokes. Yeah. And I always <laughs> like those. Every time we do a Star Trek, and I'm sure that, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I've brought this up before, but I, I, I very much like the Doctor as a character. And Robert Picardo is very fun, but three Trek series in, I still don't understand what a hologram can and cannot do. It just does not make any sense to me. So he can manipulate objects and doors and touch people and hold a tricorder, but he can't be injured? Yes. So why don't they just have a whole ship run by fucking holograms? That is a good question. I think, so the idea is that he was an emergency medical hologram. So he is only to be activated if the doctor dies, which happens in the pilot of this. Um, and so he is like limited kind of in, in what he can do. Like he maybe doesn't have the best bedside manner and he is maybe not a good, uh, as good at as adapting to all sorts of situations. And then he ends up running for a really long time because they need a doctor. So the show is theoretically exploring him expanding his potential as a hologram. I, I do think that they kind of sometimes ignore that and just treat him like a character and sometimes, or sometimes treat him like a human, sometimes treat him like a hologram and, it gets a little fuzzy in there sometimes. Well, you know, science. Uh, science. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the idea that, like, especially when they when they just embrace how wacky and almost subversive it is when you get someone to watch over me and it's like, oh, we've got like a half toaster interacting with... Uh, half with the, half light? <laughs> with, with half light. And they're kind of being quasi-romantic with each other. Like, that's... I wouldn't necessarily... Maybe not subversive, but like, this is impressively strange <laughs> well and i do think they do a good job early on of limiting him where, where he can't leave the, the sick bay mm -hmm. like they they do i think at first they do a good job of really establishing the parameters for the character but that doesn't work for seven seasons and so they just kind of do some hand waving to get around that at a certain point and at least i don't know if that's accurate for you know <laughs> what was confusing to you simon uh but for for me it's just sort of I enjoy the character enough that I'm just going to give it to him. And uh, again, wavy hands, science. Now he can go everywhere and beyond forever. They should have just had an episode in like season three where he's like, I want to be a real boy. And they, they just let me just they make did. it happen. Did they? Oh, oh, and just made it happen. No, they didn't do that. Oh. They do give him something called a mobile emitter, which he, so he turns himself on in sickbay, puts on this mobile emitter, and that allows the, like, essentially the thing the hologram is wearing projects the hologram. It's like technology way from the future that got sent back and they ended up using it. So at that point, he can kind of, you know, walk around the ship, get beamed away onto away missions. So they don't fully make him a real boy, but they go about as far as they could go without, um, you know, kicking the character off the show or something. And plus, I, I always like a character who appreciates opera. So, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the moment of him being erased and then still singing the singing the I think I want to say it was Carmen or something. I don't remember off the top of my head because uh, unfortunately that wasn't one I had time to rewatch. But, uh, you know, a moment like that is really effective for me and I always appreciate it. Do Now, do we have any other characters we want to spend time with? We've just barely mentioned Tuvok. There are some other no. Neelix. Oh, man, Kes, I had no... She was on the show for way longer than I remembered. Yeah, three seasons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anybody else we want to mention, or are these the heavy hitters for you guys? I, I never I... got to the episode where Kes isn't there anymore. How does that happen? So she is this... Uh, again, there's some things I haven't rewatched in a while, but she is a race that only lives to be like eight or nine years old. So essentially she like reaches the point where 
So so part of her storyline is about the fact that she's getting older really rapidly. And then she's sort of going through all of these like mental changes where she's like, I don't know, you know, expanding beyond her human form. And so she essentially like, I think just sort of floats off into space and gives yep. Voyager this gift where she pushes them off closer to the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. And then she comes back later. Mm-hmm. Just a little guest appearance later. Um, I guess I'm a little more mixed on. I think that the character had a lot of potential. I, I wish she had stuck around longer because I think they could have explored that. Um, and, you know, having more than three women at a time would have been nice. I love the idea of Tuvok and I love Tim Russ's performance. I think he's another character that gets a bit lost in the shuffle. Um, Tuvok episodes tend to be really strong ones. There just aren't a lot of them. Uh, but I will say he's the first full Vulcan that's ever been... In Star Trek, because, of course, Spock was a half-Vulcan. So it is interesting to think about the way that, I guess, Tim Russ approached the role compared to Leonard Nimoy and that he is even more sort of emotionally repressed than our biggest image of a Vulcan in Trek canon. I'm still waiting for any other series to have the guts to cast a full Vulcan. They did one on Enterprise, too, but it was not the most successful. I wasn't talking about Star Trek. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Yeah, just showing up on New Girl this season, a full Vulcan. Yeah. Got to start breaking down those barriers. That's how change happens. <laughs> well, what are our final thoughts then on, on Voyager? I think we, I know I could talk quite a bit longer uh, about what works and maybe doesn't about the show, most memorable moments and such, but we are almost out of time, as always happens in these Star Trek segments. Uh, Simon, what else will you take away about Star Trek Voyager? And do you have any thoughts on this you know, anti-Voyager bias that is out there. At least you, you've only watched the, the episodes we recommended as the best episodes, but that's also the case for TNG, and that's also the case for DS9, as little as you remember. Uh, how would you put this in this, the world of, Voyager, uh, of Star Trek? I, I mean, I didn't notice a huge quality differential between them. Uh, from my recollection, I will say that uh, I'm sure that whatever perceived quality gap exists within the nerd community between the Star Treks has nothing to do with the gender <laughs> of the captain. Because as we all know, the nerd community doesn't have a gender problem. Yeah. All about They're only about ethics in, in space travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's no racism either about, <laughs> about DS9. No, not none at all. Ethics in space travel, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, Caroline? Yeah, so I I will just say for anyone who is sort of hesitant to revisit Voyager, I would say go back with an open mind. I used to be one of you. I was kind of raised to think that Voyager was a really lame show and then only discovered it kind of late into my high school career. And there are certainly a lot of pleasures to be had. I'm not sure if the show ever reaches, you know, the fantastic heights that Next Generation and Deep Space Nine did. But I also don't think it falls anywhere, you know, near as low as, as certainly as Next Generation could do at the beginning. Like, Voyager is very consistent. I think it's probably a great show for someone looking to introduce their kids to the Star Trek world. It's probably a great one to start with because it does tend to be kind of a little bit nicer and more optimistic in its mentality. Um, so I would say go back in with an open mind and, and you know what? There's not a lot of serialization here. Start with the good episodes. Don't try to marathon it all the way through. Like, start with some highlights. Get to know the characters. You know, then you can go back and suffer through that weird episode where Paris becomes a lizard. But wait till you kind of <laughs> like the characters first before you jump in with that one. Don't wait till you like Paris. It might not happen. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's... I do a- like Paris. I was embarrassed to admit that before. I acknowledge all of his flaws, but the, as the, like, kid that fell in love with him... Uh, as the bad <laughs> rebel, like I have a little soft spot for him. 
Oh, that's adorable, Caroline. I don't know if you mean it to be, but it is. No, um, it is. I acknowledge it as being like a very lame part of my personality that I enjoy Tom Paris. <laughs> well, uh, I, yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And yeah, that's the thing. When people talk about Next Generation, and this is from a Next Generation fan, they're never they're like oh well the first two seasons don't count i'm sorry that's what like 40 episodes of television if you're marathoning the show you had to sit through those two seasons they count so while there is a lot of really great tng and there's a lot of really great ds9 both shows but definitely tng has a lot of clunkers in there ds9 every episode about Ferengis is terrible Mm-hmm. All of them. So I think Voyager definitely gets a, bu- a, a you know a bad rap for having a really like Simon, like you're saying, it's really it's a consistent show, and and uh, the the quality of it. Yeah, again, I do. It's uh, clearly the issues people are having with the show have to do with ethics and space travel, um, <laughs> and so that can be a difficult thing to overcome. But if you are willing to give this show, a, you know, a fair shake. I think it's worth checking out, and I think people will be surprised by the gems and the things that do work and that are there, especially if you're somebody who feels marginalized by um, what TNG and DS9 and Original Trek uh, have to offer. <laughs> original Trek was full of nuanced female characters. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so what many. It, we're going to have to do – I mean, I – I, I, we, we never say no when people have a show they want to talk about on, <laughs> Unfortunately. on the DVD shelf. Um, <laughs> there's only been a couple times where that's been more of an issue. I just, I really don't think, I'm not foreseeing us having to watch Enterprise and certainly not before we watch original series. So at some point, Simon, I'm sure we'll be watching some original series. I'm not too worried about us having to watch Enterprise, but it certainly has been a treat for me to go back and and relive some of the you know these memories from when I was younger with Voyager. So thank you so much, Caroline, for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, please. You can find me. Um, I'm at Caroline Sita on Twitter. You can check me out at the AV Club. I run a Doctor Who podcast called Debating Doctor Who. And I am always looking for fellow Voyager fans. So do reach out to me if you are slightly insane like me and want to defend a show that everyone else on the internet uh, seems to dislike. It's it's always fun. It's a good time. It's a good time. Yeah. So uh, thank you again, Caroline, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Uh, and I was like, I don't care about stoner comedy. So it was it was your insistence that everyone much was much was much wa- must watch. It was your insistence that every insistence that everyone must watch too many cooks that finally got me to set aside the ten minutes. I'm so glad that I did. Too many cooks.